If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Last couple of days, I'm back to that rather interesting and simple reflection of how often it is that the Lord does the works that he does through the simple acts of obedience of his people. Yesterday we were reflecting again on the story of the water into wine and the rather simple and in some ways incomprehensible action of the servants. Mary says simply, do whatever he tells you, and that's what they do. The filling up of the water pots with the water, okay, that's a little bit strange when they need wine, but then even the action of drawing out of the wine, which as far as they know is just water that they're drawing out to take to the master of the feast. A little act of obedience, but it opens the way for the miracle that the Lord does, which is overwhelming. But in that light, and a few days earlier, I'd been thinking again about the feeding of the 5,000. And again, there's the little act in the face of what seems to be an overwhelming situation. How do you possibly feed the thousands of people when you have no resources? Well, what do we have? You know, a few loaves, a couple of fish. But they're brought to Jesus. That's the first step in obedience. But then as he gives to them what he has blessed and broken, they go out to distribute. And I've mused on that one before. We wonder sometimes, well, how does it happen? No indication that where there were five loaves, suddenly there are 5,000. But that as they draw out, the Lord continues to supply. It takes that little action in obedience. Well, the day of Pentecost, we come to this day and the disciples are just doing what Jesus has given them to do. They come to trust even more than ever before in the power that is in that. He says, keep gathering together, keep praying, keep doing the things that I've told you to do. And they're waiting together when that day comes. They're expectant. They're ready. I don't know what all they expected at that time. You know, on the one hand, it seems that Jesus didn't give them a day or an hour, but did he, as he opened the scriptures to them, open up the mystery of this day of Pentecost? When we think about Pentecost, we first think about the Christian festival. We think about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We need to have in mind that, of course, it was a Jewish festival of that name beforehand. We mark the 50 days after Easter, but they were already marking 50 days after Passover. Because, of course, the mysteries of Passover and the death and resurrection of Jesus are bound up together. Well, likewise, the unfolding of this Pentecost, of this Feast of Weeks, it's the end of the seven sevens, a week of weeks, which by itself might seem a small thing. We're just thinking about numbers and I know that some of you are just computing this as we go. You, your times tables kick in and you know that seven sevens are 49. So you make the connection right away. This is the day after the 50th day. But as you go back into Leviticus and look at things with the sevens of years, you know, every seventh year has that significance as a Sabbath year. The seventh is always that day in which the Lord rested and his people are to take respite. 
There's a resting of the land that comes in. But especially when you get to the seven sevens, and there are the seven Sabbaths of years that have gone by, that 50th year is a year of jubilee. You can go back into Leviticus 25 and 27 and read about some of the things that went with that. It was one of those days to remind them of their, one of those days, one of those years to remind them of their radical trust in God, putting everything back in his hands, letting go, letting go of land in the land. What's been sold reverts to those to whom it had been given by the Lord. Slaves are being set free. There's a letting go into God's hands. All of that is background when we think about this Jubilee day in the year, this day of Pentecost. What had Jesus prepared them for in that? This day of release in a very profound way. It had also come to be understood as the day that commemorated the giving of the law on Sinai. So now we think about Moses going up the mountain, 50 days out of their bondage in Egypt. Now at the mountain, as God promised, this would be the sign that he had sent Moses, that his hand was in all of this. They would worship him at the mountain. And now the law is given. Moses goes up the mountain. We've got laws and commandments, but most notably the tablets of stone on which are carved the Ten Commandments that he brings down. Well, now on the Feast of Pentecost, there's a whole different kind of expectancy. They're not going up the mountain. They're humbled in prayer before the Lord, and he condescends to them. He comes down to touch them by his living presence, to touch them with his his new law, his new covenant. As the prophets spoke of, there was the law and the commandments that were set outside, carved in the tablets of stone. They looked to conform themselves to that. God's gift, God's revealed heart, his mind, his will, but as an external thing, first to inform his people, but as they followed, to begin to form them as his children. But now the new gift, the Lord coming down in his spirit, not us climbing the mountain to find this law, but him coming down to write, not on the tablets of stone, but on the hearts of flesh. And so in Ezekiel, the promise of of the new heart, the new mind, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Did Jesus prepare them for all of that? Did they know in their waiting that they were getting ready for this day where this wondrous thing would happen. It was a a harvest festival. Frankly, the three major festivals in the year are all connected with harvests. Those three times they were to present themselves before the Lord. Passover, this Feast of Pentecost or Feast of Weeks, but also tabernacles, booths, something to reflect on on another time. Again, one connected by Jesus very closely with the outpouring of the Spirit and these living waters, harvest. And with harvest comes the offering of first fruits. Again, something of the costly trust in God. Because as the harvest begins, you take off the top of the best that's there and you bring in to the Lord. And it's the confidence that He will give the full harvest. And you, for your part, are saying, We offer you these first fruits, the beginning of the tithes. 
as a promise that the full tithes will come in due time. And the tithes are just a reminder that the whole belongs to you anyway. But the Lord receiving that gift and pouring out his blessing. St. Paul will write about the Holy Spirit bringing into our lives the first fruits of God's kingdom. The pledge, the earnest, the down payment, the beginning of that new life at work in us to enable us to grow up as true sons and daughters. St. James will follow that somewhat in his epistle by saying that by that grace we become a kind of first fruits in the world. God's pledge, God's promise of this life of the kingdom that is coming. Putting themselves radically in the Lord's hands. I, I think about the background that's there. There's also then on the day itself, in the things that happen, there's more that's stirred of the ancient echoes. We're told that when the day came and they were gathered together, there was that sound as of a rushing of a mighty wind filling the place. Did it stir in them some ancient memory of the beginning of all things as the Spirit of God moved over the face of the water and things were stirred and creation began at that Word of God? Here's a new creation happening. And yet, when it came to the human being and the first, the first man, We know that it wasn't the overwhelming rushing winds that blew upon him. It was that intimate touch of God. Doing something that he'd not done before as he formed the man out of the dust, the very breath of God being breathed in that he might become a living soul. This hybrid creature of of angel and beast, if you will. It's not the breath of the wind so much at this moment as it's that intimate touch, that gentle touch of the the flame of fire upon their heads, described as a tongue of flame. And we think about the tongues that they will be given in speaking in the other languages. It's the same word there in the Greek, glossa, the glossolalia, the tongues that are given, that are stirred up. But the fire, and again, a fire that comes and it burns, and yet it doesn't burn them up. I want to say that it doesn't consume them, but there's a sense in which this fire of God always consumes if we let go wholly to it. But it's the consummation of, uh, that comes with the immolation of the sacrifice, the perfect offering to him. But a fire that burns but doesn't burn up. There's again an ancient memory that goes with that. Where do we encounter such a fire? There are signs that are the fire of God's presence, but where is that fire that burns but doesn't burn up? That's the marvel. Well, we're back to Sinai again. We're back to Horeb. We're back to the mountain of the Lord. And that first encounter between God and Moses that's there at the burning bush, this wonder that draws the patriarch aside, It's burning because the Lord is present in the midst. The angel of the Lord has come down to be present in that bush, in that flame of fire. And the Lord speaks to Moses, encounters him with his holiness, draws him in to that holiness. Moses will later 
reflect something of that glory. It will be, as we've described before, kind of the, the glory that's there in the moon, the reflection of God's holy burning, His holy fire. We know, though, in Christ Himself, that when that light appears, it's the light not of the moon, but of the sun, of that holy burning. We see at the transfiguration, we see in the road to Damascus where he encounters St. Paul, we see it in the glorious revelation. But there's also another human encounter with that fire. It's there in the Blessed Virgin Mary as she contains that living holy fire of his presence within. So in the Eastern churches, we have the icon that is of Mary as the burning bush. The flames all about, but she's not being burned up. She is being immolated in his love. She is being gathered in his holy presence as he abides within her. And always in that icon, then you see the presence of Christ within or seated upon her. And that holy presence now offered to the disciples, of course, Mary herself being present on that day. This fire that comes down and burns around them, burns upon them, because He comes to dwell within, to burn within, to abide within. It's that promise that Jesus offers them. If you would keep my word, then I will give you this other helper, this other counselor. If you would obey my word, if you'd walk in that will, then I will come, the Spirit will come, the Father will come, and we will make our home with the one who does that. So often when we think about the obeying commandments and obeying words, we think about the slavish obedience, we think of the fear, we think of dealing with what's external to us. The obedience Jesus is talking about is the heart that's given over to him. It's the obedience of sons, sons and daughters, if you will, who don't act out of fear, but are caught up in that love, who come to share the same heart and mind and will, who come to be gathered up into that same holy fire. We will come and make our home with him. The word at that point for the, the making of the home, for the Making our abode is the best translation, really, because the word is mone, not a standard word for a house. It's the noun that comes from the verb meno, and meno is that word to abide. When Jesus talks about the need for his disciples to abide in the vine, to be rooted in him, to be drawing their life out of him, that's the word that he's using, that's the sense of it to be anchored in Him, to be drawing our life from Him. When that day came, how well prepared were they? Did they know that this was the time? And then as the glory was poured out, did they catch the glimpse of another time when men were gathered together, gathered together with a common purpose in a common name, gathering together with a common tongue, even, but there on the plains of Shinar, back in Genesis 11, we moved from the garden and the demonic temptation there into a city that's being raised up in a tower. You'll know it as Babel or Babel, if you like, where they come together to exalt themselves, to make a name for themselves, 
to be able to reach heaven, to reach that utopia, a vision that begins to sound more and more like a modern vision all the time. We're going to speak the same language. We're going to conform to the same aims. We're going to rule God out of the picture. But now on this day, they gather together, not in their name, but in the name of Jesus. Not to raise themselves up, but to humble themselves before Him. Not to climb up to heaven, but to await the one who condescends to come down, to touch their hearts, to touch their lives. And strangely, those who thought that they communicated together are given a diversity of tongues. Not that they would be confused and scattered, but that they might reach out more fully and gather in others. And as all the musical minds among us will think again, they sing together then not a monotone, they sing all the different notes. But as it's organized together by the Divine Spirit on that common theme, it becomes not a cacophony as it did at Babel, but a a harmony and a rich and a deep tone declaring the mighty works that God has done. And it doesn't divide, it draws in, it gathers in. Yes, a few souls who will mock, but even some of them will be humbled in the process and ashamed and maybe turn. But by the end of the day, we know some 3,000 were gathered into a company that had been 120. A little act of obedience and five loaves and two fish fed more than 5,000 men, not including women and children. Water poured into the stone water pots in a simple act of obedience to the word of the Lord produced overflowing gallons of wine. And on this day, on this day, the simple obedience, waiting on Him, attending to Him, opening their lives in prayerful waiting, He poured out His grace, He poured out His glory, and the river of His living waters flow out through the world. If it doesn't seem to be a contradictory image, the fire of His Spirit Burns a fire that the water can't put out, a fire that doesn't burn to destroy, but burns to refine, to heal, to make holy. As we come on this day, as we come in Eucharist, as we come in worship, may we come as those who wait upon Him, who look for the simple call to the little obediences that open the doors into our lives that He might enter in, that He might transform us, that He might make us holy, His own. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you forever. Come, Holy Spirit, bless the hearts of Thy faithful and kindle in us the fire of Thy love.